Were human beings created to be vegans? Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. Look back there. I I thought about this last week, didn't really address it, but listen to, to what God said. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So on day six of of the beginning... Of creation, as as God is is now created Adam, and He's giving what is called the Edenic Covenant, which we'll come back to later on this evening. It's also called the Adamic Covenant because it's a covenant that God made with Adam. First covenant in Scripture, and in the Hebrew Bible, there are seven covenants that we'll see going through. But He gives this first part of the Edenic Covenant where He tells Adam, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve, and and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it, have dominion. And then He adds in, and I want you to be vegans. No meat, no eggs, no fish, nothing living other than fruits and veggies. Straight vegan diet. Was it all about health and well-being? I mean, no doubt, such a pure diet, along with the vapor canopy above, providing a very sweet, balmy, tropical environment below, life would have been idyllic. Veggie life, fruity life. But, good news to meat lovers everywhere, God eventually put steak on the menu, if you skip ahead to Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So rare steak maybe not on the menu, but steak nonetheless. Burgers. Fried chicken. Meat is on the menu. So why was the pre-flood fair... Fruits and veggies. Two reasons. Number one, a steak lover's diet requires the death of an animal. Right? Romans 5.12 says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Until the man sinned, there would be no meat to eat. There couldn't be. Because there wouldn't be death. Without death, you don't have meat. Without meat, you don't eat meat no death before the fall of man the vegan provision was pre-fall pre-sin now between the fall and the flood death and decay the ten generations from Adam to Noah death and decay did infiltrate creation but God waited patiently until after the flood before Genesis 9 making that pronouncement before allowing meat and potatoes together on the menu well why do you wait second thing to note that God had yet to give animals as it says over in Genesis chapter 9 verse 2 the fear of man he says the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. And until animal life had fear, God was not about to let man eat meat. It's not fair. 
at least let the animals run away. You know, give them a fighting chance. And so we see God extending His righteous care to all creation. Not all creation on the same level as we talked about on Sunday. Clearly, man is in a different place. Mankind, male and female, He created them above and different and distinct from all the animals. And yet, God did create all the animals. So God does have a heart of compassion for all of His creation. But check this out. The day is coming when the Bible says the pre-fall order will be reestablished in the earth. So eat your burgers now. (laughs) Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 11. I'll just read this to you. If you want to run over there real fast, you can. But Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is speaking of Messiah coming out of the line of Jesse, the father of David, the Davidic line. Messiah would shoot up, would branch out. Isaiah 11, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he, speaking of Jesus, will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And now we're transitioning from first coming of Christ to second coming of Christ where it says, and also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist and the wolf will lie down or will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them also the cow and the bear will graze can you imagine driving down 20 and coming to that low spot as you're heading toward Oak Harbor and there's all the field of cows and a bunch of bears just hanging out just eating grass together. It says, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Animals back to a vegetarian diet as well. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den and kids won't have to come back until the street lights come on. I added that one. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth. The earth, listen, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Isn't that amazing? He is both the shoot of Jesse and he is the root of Jesse David's father, Jesus Christ, as he said in Revelation twenty two sixteen, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So we're going to get back to the vegan diet. Some of you are already there. That's fine. I'm still going to McDonald's. You can tell me not to. I still have to get a burger every now and then. But Jesus is going to make it all right. Make it all perfect. Make it all... In the Greek, paradiso, like the garden of God. We're going to go to the garden tonight. I'm excited to do that. But by the way, before we get there, speaking of Jesus, I think I mentioned previously that he verified the Genesis account. Right? I, I shared that in Matthew 19, and 
And in Matthew 19, I'll, I'll read it to you. It tells us that he's speaking to the Pharisees and they say, they come to him asking, Matthew 19, verse 3, testing him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now he's quoting Genesis. So Jesus verifies the legitimacy of Genesis, but it's more. It's it's more than simply that. Jesus legitimized both chapter 1 and chapter 2 as true. Because he quotes from both. And there are those who will come along and they'll say, well, yeah, I don't know. Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are in a contradiction. Things that happen in Genesis chapter 2 are out of order from chapter 1. Therefore, there's one of those biblical contradictions. There are no contradictions here, my friends. And Jesus himself not only verified Genesis, but quotes from the first chapter and the second chapter. And as far as I'm concerned, that legitimizes both. It's amazing how he does that. You know what else is amazing? When Christians waffle on the Word of God. And we've talked about this before, and I encourage you to think through everything that we study and look closely at the Word and do not listen to the critic. Listen to the Spirit. Look at what the Word says. Because waffling happens, and I think far too often... Among those of us who follow Jesus, and we have all been guilty of it, well, I'm just not sure if that's what it says. Be sure! Study to show yourself approved, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly and accurately handling the word of truth. Know the word. Why is it so hard to know the word? We'll study all kinds of other manuals. Study this one. And know it. Because it's been said... Many a Christian life is not defeated from without. Instead, they die a slow, agonizing, and unnecessary death from within. And I call that the slow decay of faith. You want to be in good health spiritually? It's not fruits or veggies or even meat that will do it. It's the Word of God. Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and Matthew 4, verse 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And from Genesis to Revelation, we've got a book that is compiled of all those words, every word proceeding from His mouth. So go to the Word be healthy in Jesus. Go to Jesus. He said, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And you know the Hebrew word for rest. It's Shabbat, Sabbath. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God had completed His work which He had done, and He rested, Shabbat, on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested, again, Shabbat, from all His work which God had created and had made. Note that, His work which He had created, bara, and made. Borrowed. <laughs> he created something from nothing, and then he made something from the something that he created from nothing. 
Get it? So everything created came ultimately from nothing, but some of what He created then He formed into other things, as we will see with man. Who He both created as something from nothing and also something from something. I'm getting ahead of myself. But I wanted to read over these three verses. We ended here last week, but to go back one more time and consider that this rest, this Shabbat, is not the rest of lethargy. It's not the rest of utter exhaustion or the rest of laziness. It is the rest of accomplishment. That God completed the earth. He made all the creation and all the universe six days. And on the seventh day, He didn't go, Whew, I'm beat. I'm, I'm just famished. No. He sat back. And He was satisfied in the work of creation. And He hasn't stopped working. He still works in you. He still works in me. And I am confident of this very thing. Philippians 1.6 That He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The Bible goes on. Paul says, Philippians 2.13 For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Why is my life in the position that it's in right now? God is willing and working. How do you know? Because you're here. You're here tonight. And you may be one step out of an utter disaster of a life, but you're here tonight. Why are you here? God's at work. God is doing His work in you. He's busy in my life, in our hearts. He is the one who is working for His good pleasure. What's God's good pleasure? Well, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. His pleasure, His joy, is you. It's sons and daughters who will be gathered around Jesus in that day, eating all kinds of fruits and vegetables. Verse 4. Verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, literally note this. My Bible reads, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. There are different translations. The best translation would be, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. The generations. Now, you Bible scholars jot this down because this is another way to move through the book of Genesis. This is yet another way to outline the book, and it's inherent in the book. Kind of cool that it works this way. We talked about just a three-part outline. Well, this is actually an 11-part outline that follows this word generations. This is, or these are, the generations of the heavens and the earth. And that might sound a little strange. What do you mean the generations of the heavens? I thought people had generations. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. The word generations in Hebrew is toldot. And if you're writing that down, just T-O-L-D-O-T. And it's the toldot method of reading through Genesis, of organizing Genesis. Toldot, the generations, literally is the what became of. So this is what became of the heavens and the earth. And that's where we're going in Genesis, where it starts and what became of it. You and I know what became of it. We're living in the what became of. We're in the mess of toldot right now. But the toldot, this is the first one. And many rabbinical scholars move through Genesis organized by toldot. Here in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, the toldot, or the what became of, the heavens and the earth. 
In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, the next part is the toldot, or what became of Adam. And you see the generations of Adam to Noah in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, reads the toldot of Noah. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, is the toldot of Noah's sons. And that word is right there in the verse, the generations of the sons of Noah. And it speaks in chapter 10 of humanity spreading out in what we call the table of nations. And that's actually a very interesting chapter to move through and consider. It's not just a boring genealogy. And then we get to chapter 11, verse 10, and that's called the toldot of Shem. Because now we begin to branch off to follow the Shemitic or Semitic people, the Jews. Arabs and Jews together are Semitic peoples, but then primarily the Jewish people. Because then in Genesis 11 verse 27, we come to the what became of, the toldot of Terah, Abraham's father, Abram's father, and then the life of Abram. So it's what became of his line, the generations of Terah. Down in Genesis 25, we have the toldot of Ishmael. Genesis 25, verse 12. It gives us just a little bit of Ishmael, who is the non-chosen one. The non-player in God's economy and in God's plan. Ishmael was outside the plan. So we come to Genesis 25, verse 19, and we get the toldot, or the what became of, or the generations of, Isaac, the chosen son. Abraham's son, whom he loved. The son that God recognized. Then in Genesis 36, verse 1, the next toldot we come to is the what became of Esau, or Edom, who is the next non-chosen son. This happens twice. First with Ishmael not chosen, but Isaac was. And then with Esau not chosen, but Jacob is. And so, Genesis 36, verse 9, continues to follow, says the toldot of the people of Edom. So now it's the non-chosen line from Esau. Now that goes the direction of the Arabic people, not chosen. Hey, don't feel bad for them. You weren't chosen either. I wasn't chosen until, until Jesus came. And then everybody who chooses Him is chosen which I think is a marvelous thought. The final, the 11th toldot, is the toldot of Jacob and his children, which is the chosen line. So 11 toldots, 11 generations of, 11 what became ofs in the book of Genesis. And I thought, that's cool, but I wish there were 12. I mean, don't you? 12 tribes of Israel. 12 apostles. 12 is that number of governance in the Bible. We'll see it come up from time to time. And it always seems to be connected with governmental organization in God's economy. So 12 would have been better. I say, Lord, I wish there were 12. And He told me there was. Where? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy or the generations or in Hebrew, the toldot of Jesus the Messiah. Because it's all directing us right to Him. And He's the final one in the line. Jesus, who is the beginning, He was in the beginning with God and created everything. Jesus in the beginning, and Jesus is also the end of all the toldotes. Well, in verse 4, this is the toldote, the account, the, the what became of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Wait a minute, I thought... 
He did it in six days. You mean in the day? And doesn't this thing kick wide open the door that each one of the six days could have been billions of years each? No, it does not. Because each day of the six days, as we talked about last week, is formed as there was evening and there was morning one day. We were given a a graphic description of a 24-hour period on the Jewish calendar, thinking evening to morning, dark to light, one day, and every single one of the six days has an ordinal or, or a numeral put with it. This is evening and morning, one day. This is morning or evening and morning, the second day. Evening and morning, the third day. And so they're very specific in chapter 1. When we come here, we get the idea that this is the account of the earth and the heavens when they were created in the day that the Lord made them. The word day can mean something more. It can be bigger than a 24-hour period. But God always means exactly what He says. And if it's a precise 24-hour day, he tends to make that very clear. It's something like 1,100 times in the Hebrew Scriptures where the word yom, which is day, is used. It's clearly a 24-hour day. I think it's used a total of like 1,400 times. So there are a few hundred times, much, much less, but a few hundred times where it's used and it means a period of time like the day of the Lord, which we know is much longer than a single 24-hour period. But where it is a 24-hour period, God is precise and God is specific. But there's something of greater significance here. Something far bigger. In verse 4, listen to it again. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God... This is the first time we hear the name of God. Genesis 2.4 is now the Lord God. Up until now, it's only been God. It's been Elohim. God, who is Elohim, plural, three or more, right? Is how Elohim is defined, three or more of deity. And so it's been Elohim all the way through chapter 1, and we get this sense of Elohim, the Creator, which we know is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We've been over this. But now we come to chapter 2, and it just gets personal. Because now He's the Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh in the Hebrew is called the Tetragrammaton. It's four consonants. It's Y-H-W-H. And to this day, when I, when I write Yahweh in my own notes, that's what I write, Y-H-W-H. And I do that to remind myself, we really don't know the exact pronunciation. Where did people get Jehovah? Well, Yahweh would be Yahweh. It's actually the Y-H, the W is a V sound, so it could be Yahweh. It could be Jehovah. Yahweh, we're not sure. But where did Yahweh come from then? Well, they took the vowels from Adonai and put them into the consonants of Y-H-W-H to come out with Yahweh. Because that name and its pronunciation has been lost to history and observant Jews today won't even refer to Him as God. If they write God, they write G-D. No O, leave the consonant out. Out of respect... Most referring to God will simply call Him Hashem, the name. The name. But you know what? While I don't know, is it Yahweh? Is it... I'm not even going to mess with other possible pronunciations. I don't know for sure. But God revealed His name early on. Throughout the Scriptures, what you'll see in the Hebrew Scriptures is the Lord. The Lord. 
in small caps. That's always the YHWH. The Lord God. I'm so thankful that He gave us Yeshua. That we know Jesus by name. That we can name our God. And we can claim Him as our God. And we can refer to Him as El Shaddai, Elohim. I don't think He's offended if we say Yahweh. If we simply say Abba, Father. El Shaddai. Any of the El names of God. And there are plenty of those. I think what's most important to God is that we call out to Him. But in this, He is the Lord God. And you're going to see the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, 19 times between chapters 2 and 3, more than any other section in the entire Hebrew Scriptures. The Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, over and over and over. He's called Yahweh Elohim one time by Abraham, when he was still Abram, in Genesis 14.22. He was called the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, one time by Moses, Exodus 19, or 9, verse 30, and that's it for Torah. So in this substantial opening five books, the Torah of the Hebrew Scriptures, we get the Lord God 19 times, chapters 2 and 3, and then just two more times. Now after that, it does show up in different places. David will use it a lot. Not as many times as the 19. Isaiah uses it quite a bit himself in his 66 books book letter. But it seems that every time the name, the name, Hashem, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, every time it's used, it's in direct relationship with man. It's God dealing with human beings one way or the other. It's personal. And he shares his name personally, like, like when he was before Moses at the burning bush. And Moses said, who do I say is, will send me? And God said to Moses, Yahweh. Or as our translation reads, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now that's not the first time they'd heard it. It's not like all of a sudden he comes and he's like, I don't know, but this God named I am said, you got to follow me. They knew who Yahweh was. They knew the name. In fact, that very personal name of God was known by mankind on a Yahweh basis from the earliest of times. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, which says the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of Yahweh. She knows his name. If you look just a bit further, Genesis 4.26, it tells us to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, and then men began to call upon or be called by the name of Yahweh. They were Yahweh followers. Followers of the Lord. And so this name was given early on, right back to day six of creation spoken, that Adam would know who this Yahweh is. And repeated and understood and known by the Jewish people, so that when Moses goes back to Egypt, having met with God, when he would say to the people, well, they said, who sent you to us? And he could say, Yahweh. They knew exactly who he was talking about. The God that they believed in. The God of all creation. Yahweh. Yahweh whose name is I Am. And truly He is. He is all we need.
Verse 5. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. And no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Uh Uh-oh. We're on day six, and it seems to me something already happened back on day three. Go ahead and look back there. Let's just unveil this mess. Let the earth sprout vegetation, Genesis 1.11. Plants yielding seed, fruit trees of their kind, bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. What did God see? Plants and trees with fruit and seed. God saw that it was good, this creation that He had Done back on day three, but now we're told on day six, at the time of the creation of man, there wasn't anything. Uh oh. What do we do with that? A contradiction, they say. No. These plants are most likely referred to as the fields of the Garden of Eden, not of the entire world, not necessarily the whole world. You see, it says there, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth was yet in the land. The word is Eretz. Eretz in the Hebrew, it's, it's the name of Israel today. Did you know that? It's Eretz Israel. The land of Israel. And the word Eretz, while in some cases can mean the planet, it also can mean a location on the planet. It can be as specific as, I could say, my backyard Eretz, the field behind my house. I would in Hebrew refer to as Eretz, the ground behind my home. It's a very specific location. And what Genesis chapter 2 is dealing with and talking about here is Eden. That's the context of the whole chapter. And so the arets here, where there were no shrubs and no plant of the earth, of the field, of the arets, none of that had sprouted yet. So we're talking about Eden. Well, how do you know that's certain? Because I know for certain that on day 3... The plants and the fruit trees and the vegetation was abundant. And God said, that's good. And now we're talking about a location, a field that doesn't contain these things yet. These things haven't grown yet. There's not a conflict here. Because we're talking about Eden. And we're also talking about this garden context that Adam is going to be put into to cultivate. And he hasn't been made yet, so he can't cultivate it yet. So God's waiting on that. And there's more to it even than that. Note this, verse 6. A mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And that was the tropical pre-flood condition. Uh, a mist. Mist is not the best translation. It's probably uh, freshwater artesian wells. It's a flow that's coming up out of the out of the ground. Water bubbling up to water the ground, and that's how God did it before the rain. The U.S. Geological Survey tells us there's more water underground than in all Earth's freshwater lakes and streams combined. You took all the ocean depths, you take all the, well, all the freshwater, all the freshwater lakes and streams, combine all of that, all of the lakes, the massive lakes that we have throughout the planet, what we're told is over 2 million cubic meters of fresh water is stored in a half mile of the Earth's surface. 2 million cubic meters. That's compared to 60,000 cubic meters of fresh water in all the lakes and inland seas and rivers. 
more in a half mile by, by an astounding amount than in all the seas and rivers combined. So there's plenty of water out there. And the Lord God took care of the earth, planting and watering and, and growing. And you know what? He always has. It's what God has always done, planted and watered and providing growth. Jesus said in Luke 12, 27, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will He clothe you? You men of little faith. Seek His kingdom. Luke twelve thirty one, And these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And I've told you before, Luke 12 and Matthew 6, those two parallel teachings are vital to having a faith to trust God with your money. To know that God is your provision. And when your money tight, it's hard to believe. Well, if God's my provision, how can I, come I can barely pay my bills? Maybe... He's waiting for you to trust Him. Maybe He's allowing you opportunity to see how it works when you're in charge of your provision. Maybe what He's doing is calling you to get down on your knees and say, Lord, increase my faith so that I can follow You and not worry about all the rest. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, Jesus said, and all these things, they'll be added to you as well. God is a planter and a grower. He provides for these things. Verse 7, And then, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man, man became a living being. This is so cool because we were formed materially, but we were breathed spiritually. We're made from dust and clay, yet we're created in the spirit, our, our spirit is created from nothing. That's the bara. That's the created. Where God created them, male and females. We talked about Sunday. He gave us a spirit and the spiritual capacity. And He made us like Him because God is spirit. And that part of our, of our being, which by the way is truly inseparable from the rest of us, except by death, spirit man, the, the physical man, Soul man, it's all part of my triune nature created after the pattern of God. So that's created, bara, given this, this spirit. But I'm also formed. And that is speaking specifically of my flesh. The word formed here, the Lord God formed man, is yitzer. Yitzer. <laughs> and it means to fashion or shape by design. But i got to show you something here. And you can't see it in the English, but you might make a little note in your Bible margins that where it says the Lord God formed man, the word formed in the Hebrew is defective. It's a misspelling. It's a misspelling that has been carefully carried over by every scribe to copy down the scriptures across thousands of years. That in every old manuscript we go back to, we don't see a correction made. We just see this misspelling of the word Yitzer, Yitzer which means formed, but it has two yods. 
What's a yod? Well, we would translate that or transliterate that a Y. So Yitzer, we would spell it out Y-I-T-S-E-R. But this one's not spelled that way. It's spelled Y-Y-I-T-S-E-R. And you may be asking, why? Why? (laughs) And there's a good reason for it, I think. It's very interesting. It's the only time in the entire Bible where Yitzer is defective, quote-unquote, misspelled with two yods instead of just one at the beginning of the word. Why is this? Well, note first of all, if you look down at verse 19, it tells us that out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And that word formed in the same chapter is also Yitzer, but it's just one yod, one one. And the rest of the time, as I said, you see this word in the scripture, it's just one Y. That's how you spell Yitzer. Y-I-T-S-E-R, if we're, again, in English form. A yod to begin. But two yods. The rabbis offer some interesting thoughts. One, that it means formed here. Formed has two Ys at the beginning because it speaks of man's proclivity for good and evil. Two yods, good and evil. Or maybe, maybe they say it's that we're formed both materially and created immaterially. That we are flesh and spirit, two yods. Well, that's interesting too. Or perhaps, perhaps it means that we are formed twice. Once for this world and once in the resurrection. I like all three of those, so I'm going to go with all three. But it does make us stop for a moment and say, wait, whoa, Lord, what? there's something significant that's taking place here as God forms man, as He yitzers <laughs> mankind. We're unique. Unique, different than any other creature. Not only unique in spirit, but guess what? We are unique in our formation. There is no other creature, no other animal like us in formation. None that are close. And if someone says, Rick, I think you're close to an ape, I'm coming after you. We are absolutely unique, as unique as this single word, this single yitzer, the, the why, why it formed. And Isaiah uses this word in two very interesting ways. For the uniqueness of humanity. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16, he says, Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed, Yitzer, would say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. That is what the atheist does. That's what the agnostic does. That's what those who deny God will do. They're the clay saying to the potter, You didn't make me. He formed you uniquely. But Yitzhar also conveys something else I think is absolutely remarkable. I want to read this to you. This is uh, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 5. Isaiah 49, verse 5, which says, Now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and God is my strength. He says, is it 
It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of all the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Literally, so my Yeshua will reach to the ends of the earth. And it speaks of the formation of the physical body of Jesus. Same word. And as I said at communion, and I mentioned on Sunday... It's in a radical creation reversal of man according to the likeness of God. Jesus, Philippians 2.8, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ had a body formed for him. In the same way that we had a body formed. That man was formed. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 says, When He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. And you know what that body would do. It would be nailed to the cross. Well, back in Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Dust there is literally loose soil. Loose soil from the ground. Ground is Adama. Adam, Adama. Adam was formed from Adama. And Adama is the same root word for Adam and Adama. It means red dirt, red clay. And so the Lord God formed us. We are formed from dirt. That'll keep you grounded. <laughs> we are formed of earth. That is the substance of, of the physical. Again, the physical, because remember, He breathed the Spirit of life into us. But we're formed from dirt. And this is repeated again and again throughout the Scripture. Psalm 103, verse 13, as example, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Adamah. We're just the crumblings of the ground put together. And we should be humbly mindful of that reality. I love how David said, Lord, teach me to number my days. Lord, don't let me get so far ahead of myself that I think I'm invincible. No, Lord, you let me know my humanity. You remind me that I'm flesh. That I'm made of the earth. It's a humble place to be and it keeps us in a right position before God. But while we should be humbly mindful of our formation from earth and dirt, we also ought to be fearfully thankful for how Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, did it. Which is truly remarkable. I mean, pause for a moment. I know I I tell you to do this every now and then, just look around, and you never want to because you get that embarrassed, uncomfortable, awkward, (laughs) that guy's looking at me. But if you look around and think about the fact that you're looking at piles of dirt. (laughs) I mean, I'm looking at y'all, and for dirt, you look good. (laughs) You look amazing. And to hear you vocalize, dirt is speaking. (laughs) Dirt is well-dressed. Dirt is smiling. Some dirt is looking at me like, what's wrong with you, piece of dirt? (laughs) God formed us. This is absolutely remarkable. Scientists tell us everything we need to make up the composition of the human body is absolutely common. They know the breakdown of it. 
So here's all we need. When I make a human, here's what we do. We get ourselves 58 pounds of oxygen, 50 quarts of water, 3 pounds calcium, 24 pounds carbon, a dash of salt, 2 ounces, pinch of chlorine, some fat, some iron, some sulfur, a dollop of phosphorus and glycerin, and you got yourself all the makings of a human being. That's it. Common elements, stuff of dirt. Pick all that stuff up in those exact measurements, put it out on a table, let's meet Saturday and make a person. (laughs) See, here's the marvel of it. As common as our frame and the fact that we are nothing more than ground and dirt, when God puts us together, remarkable. Crown of creation. Able to move in such ways that, I'm sorry, digital technology still doesn't have it. I watch the movies, I see what they're doing, and now it's fantastic, but it still doesn't look real to me. You look real to me. And the movements and and what He made our bodies capable of doing, though we're common and we're basic, man, we know this, that forming the human body has proven impossible to science and mankind. We can't do it. We have all the ingredients. It's kind of like me trying to make cake. I can put all the ingredients on the counter, but what comes out of the oven is terrifying. (laughs) The components are simple, but the formation is so complex. And I'm not going to take the time to get into it tonight, but I can give you so many different... You can find it yourself. I mean, the complexity just of skin. A postage stamp-sized piece of skin requires 3 million cells, a yard of blood vessels, 4 yards of nerves, 100 sweat glands, 15 oil glands, and 25 nerve endings for a postage stamp of your skin. Wow! Who can do something like that? The Lord God. And while I don't comprehend this, the human eye. Look, Just look up the human eye. This is one of the marvels of creation. Because the human eye is one of these uh, pieces of machinery, if you will, in the human body that has to work before it's finished or it won't work. That's the construction of the human eye. You can't put piece by piece by piece and slowly piece it together to get it to work. It all has to work immediately or it doesn't work. Who's up to this? Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God who created He formed us. And and then there's a second yod. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and, and for all that marvel and wonder, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Wow. Do you remember what Jesus did in His resurrection? John chapter 20, verse 21 says, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. This was Sunday evening. He'd had a busy day already. Up early. Peace be with you, He said that evening. As the Father has sent Me, I also send you. And when He had said this in the room with the apostles, He breathed on them. And He said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I find that fascinating because then in Acts chapter 2, 40 days later... 50 days later, 50 days later, they're in Jerusalem 
Forty days later, Jesus had said to them, I want you to remain in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Power, dunamis, the power of the Spirit is poured out on you. And then ten days after that, so fifty days later, they received the Spirit in power. And people go, that's what I want. I want the power. I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I say, don't you want to just receive the Spirit first? Hey, the power is great. The power is wonderful. I want the relationship. I would rather be weak and powerless my entire life, but have the Spirit within me. I would forego, hear me on this, because I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as taught by Scriptures. I believe in the power of God and the giftings and the anointings and the callings of God. I believe in the spiritual gifts as Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 with love right in the middle. I believe in all that. But I just want His Spirit. While I need the power to do what He's called me to do, what I desire more than anything else is a relationship with God. And I fear sometimes in the church that we're so busy chasing after the power, we forgot about the relationship. The Holy Spirit is not a parlor trick. The Holy Spirit is not, as I've said so many times, the light side of the force and able to empower you to do something amazing. Oh, I want more of the power of the Holy Spirit. How about just the Spirit Himself? If given the choice between Pentecost or the upper room, I would take the upper room any day where Jesus says, Hey, Rick, receive my spirit, and he breathes. This is the same idea where God is creating. The Lord God is creating man and forms us in this remarkable formation of these elements, basic and common and yet incredible information. And then he breathes into Adam. Why does he do it that way? It's personal to God. It's relational. I want you to have some of who I am. I want you to be like me. I want to walk in that kind of relationship. Not the relationship you have with your dog. Hey, I know some of you have a wonderful relationship with your dog. Really, I do. I get that. I still get choked up when I look at pictures of Reggie. I can still tell you in the last two years, I think the hardest day of my life was having to put Reggie to sleep. It was brutal. But my relationship with Reggie and my relationship with my son Corey, two different relationships. I have never taken Corey to the vet to have him put to sleep. (laughs) No, that's not the distinction. My son and I relate. We can talk. Long talks into the night. We share life. I would take that a million times over. The cuteness and the fluffiness of Reggie. And God comes and says, look, I just, let me... And He breathes the spirit of life into man. And I'm so thankful the very first thing Adam doesn't do is go, alright, now I'm alive. Can I have some power? I want to walk into power. I want to be a power mover for Jesus. You know? He just has relationship. Which is what God offers. It's what God desires. So Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. Which is what we receive when we come to faith in Him. 1 Corinthians 15.45 tells us, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Because God breathed. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. As Jesus breathed. Well, created according to the likeness of God. 
Like we said Sunday, we're eternal, like God is eternal. We're triune, body, soul, and spirit, like God is triune. With the capacity in this creation, the capacity to be spiritual beings, but that becomes fully realized when we receive the Holy Spirit. When you're born again, your spiritual self truly comes alive. And it's what God, I believe, had been waiting for all along. Well, the Lord God formed and created man. So, Yitzer with two yods, and Bara formed and created man from the ground yet with a spirit. And verse 8, was that as far as we are? Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there He placed the man whom He had formed. You get that? God is a gardener. And I I love the picture because what we see is that He Himself created every fruit tree and every vegetable and every bush of all the fields across the entire planet day three and said, that's good. That's good. And then on the day He made man, God planted a garden. Why does it tell us before that that there was no shrub of the field in the earth or in the eretz in the land? No plant of the field had yet sprouted? Because it's telling us God was waiting on the garden. The earth was done. That creation finished. But the garden was yet to be cultivated, yet to be planted. God created man. And then God Himself, He didn't just say, let there be... See, that's the great difference, the contrast, really, uh, the counterpart, if you will, to looking back at verse 5, is verse 8, that verse 8, God planted. That's very different than spoke into existence. It's much more personal. It's like God saying, I want something really cool for Adam and Eve. I want something really personal. I'm going to plant this myself. I can just see God doing it. You know, let's put these trees. No, no, no. Yeah, over there. Bring the stream down. Oh, that'd be great there. Let's plant this. Oh, he's going to like this one. And he begins to organize and plant this, this garden that we call the Garden of Eden. God's a gardener. God plants the plants of the garden, which reminds me what Jesus said. Matthew thirteen thirty seven. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. God's a planter. And whether it's the soil of the ground or the soil of the heart, the strength to grow comes from one source and one source alone. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. All the self-help books in the world are basically piles of dead leaves without the Spirit of God cultivating us. I was just having this conversation, Jake and I were earlier today, about the whole idea that that what is it about us as human beings how quickly we chase after the latest book written by another human being? Oh, have you read this one? This is the one to base your life off of. No, this is the one to base your life off of. This is the one that provides the mapping to God's planting that helps me understand who God is. This is the one that everything else should be based off of. There are some great books out there. I'm not saying there aren't. I've got a library full of them. And some of them are full of it, if you know what I mean. (laughs) But this, 
God's Word and God's Spirit together cultivating us provides the growth. Amen? So this garden, what's interesting about the Garden of Eden, Eden itself, the context indicates Eden itself was larger than the garden. The, the garden wasn't just itself Eden, but Eden perhaps was all of Mesopotamia. The Fertile Crescent was all, that whole entire region was Eden. Why? Because God planted a garden to the east in Eden. So the implication is that Adam may have been created on the west side and then moved over to the east side where God planted the garden in the larger region of Eden. I say again Mesopotamia because Mesopotamia means between the two rivers. The Euphrates and the Tigris. And in between is that region in ancient times we called Mesopotamia. And so there in the region of Eden, God plants a garden. Yahweh Elohim hand plants this garden for Adam and Eve. Eden, verse 8, the word Eden means pleasurable or a well-watered place. And then the word garden is gan in Hebrew, so it's gan Eden. And and gan Eden means an enclosure of a well-watered place. An enclosure. It was a beautiful garden in the past, and it's God's stated plan to bring us to such a garden in the future. I was thinking about this this last week. I've said several times over the years as we've gone through the Bible, God's plan is to get us back to the Garden of Eden. That sounds really good, but it's not true. So I need to make a correction. His plan is not to get us back to the Garden of Eden. His plan is to get us on to the Garden in New Jerusalem. To take us forward. We're not going back. We're moving on. Isaiah 51 verse 3, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And her wilderness He will make like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of melody. Verse 9, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for the food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remarkable. God plants this garden. And and this is every individual tree. Again, distinct from day three of creation where God just said, let there be, and there was. Now He's going, okay, Honeycrisp. Fuji. You know. Florida orange. I don't know. I mean, He's just going around and He's creating these trees and they're growing up all around this amazingly beautiful garden. And then in the midst of that, He says, and tree of life right there. And tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right there. Plants all the trees. To be in that garden, the distinction is that the trees had to be beautiful to look at and tasty to eat. So good, sweet fruit. And in that, and don't miss this, because oftentimes we talk about the tragedy of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we, we miss the fact that in the middle of the garden of Eden, for Adam and Eve, he placed the tree of life. That all they had to do was eat that a little bit every day and they would just live forever. In in that state, there in the garden, just keep eating. The tree of life was there, extending physical life forever in health and well-being. Remember, they were vegan, so it's all good. (laughs) And we know that it would extend life forever 
that it literally had the properties, whatever they were, the tree of life had the properties to extend life eternally. How do we know that? Because after the fall, God had to bar the entrance lest some idiot in his sin state come and eat from the tree and live forever as a sinner. God barred the way back to Eden so that we wouldn't do something so foolish as to live forever in our carnal, sinful state. I'm not going to let that happen, he says. And you fast forward all the way to another tree, the cross of Calvary, where God paid the debt and we could be removed out of our sinful state. Then we could live forever as righteous. What a plan. Jesus said in Revelation 2.7 to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise, literally the garden, the paradiso, the gan in Hebrew of God. And so again, not ancient Eden. That's not where we're headed. We're heading off to new Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 22 Verse 1 says, He showed me a river of the water of life clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What does that mean? Go back and listen to the Revelation study. We talked about it. And then down in verse 14 of Revelation 22 Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. So the tree of life still grows. And the tree of life is going to be there. You think literally, Pastor? Yeah, literally the tree of life. Why? Because the Bible says so. You're so simple-minded. No, I don't waffle. When it comes to the Word of God, this is what it says. So the tree of life will be there... In Eden was also then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge. Note this. The knowledge of good and evil speaks specifically of a certain kind of knowledge. Experiential knowledge. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a knowledge that comes by acting, by doing. But you now have the experience. You now have gone through this. We might call it worldly carnal, been-around-the-block knowledge. Yeah, I've been there, and I've done that. Kind of like Pastor Les sometimes says, referring to sexual immorality, he says, you know, once the bell has been rung, you can't unring it. And it's absolutely true that with that particular sin, sexual immorality, the problem with it is once we've gone down that road, we want to go at least that far again. In any relationship. Which is why sex outside of marriage or before marriage is such a bad thing because once you've gone there, that's where you want to go. That's where you want to head. Experiential knowledge. I've had a taste of it. I want more. And the flesh just craves that kind of experience. Well, more on that in just a second. Verse 10. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon and it flows around the whole land of Havilah. That would be Iraq. That would be, again, Mesopotamia, perhaps Eden, ultimately. But in Moses' day, as he's writing it, it was called Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The Bdellium and the Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. Cush, normally we think of that as Ethiopia, although Ethiopia is down in 
Africa, and this Cush is up near these rivers up in the Iraq area. So this is a different Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the name of the fourth river is Euphrates in verse 14. So you've got four rivers, and yet only two exist. The Tigris and the Euphrates, right? Tigris and Euphrates coming down on either side of Mesopotamia, coming down and and ultimately meeting at the mouth of the Red Sea and pouring in together. Tigris and Euphrates are still here. The Pishon and the Gihon are not still here. We lost those, I believe, in the flood. The flood changed everything, by the way. We'll talk about that when we get to Genesis 6, but the flood radically altered the topography of earth in some remarkable ways. And so those two rivers, Pishon and Gihon, are gone, and yet we think that the four rivers became the boundaries of the Garden of Eden. So you had Eden, and you had Tigris and Euphrates, and then you had Gihon and, and Pishon that were on either side running above and below the actual garden that would have been in the middle of these of these four rivers. Verse 15, And then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it, which I think is great. God didn't stick man in the garden and say, All right, have fun. Eat fruit. Run around naked. Just do whatever. We don't do well when we don't have something to do. You know, on my days off, I have to have little projects or I start to get crazy. We need something to do. But but we also don't want to have something to do that's heavy-duty labor or forced or whatever. I, I was thinking, actually, and, and I wish she was here tonight, but I was thinking of, of Donna, Donna Dams, um, and how she loves to garden. She just loves to garden. I hate it, but she loves to get outside and get the dirt under her fingernails. And she's often out there working in her garden. You know, Brandy, I see you going, you too. And, and some of you love to garden. You know what? This is what God does with Adam. Hey, I want you to be a gardener. I'm going to put you in this absolutely beautiful place. And I want you to tend it and cultivate it. Adam had a job in the Garden of Eden. In the same way that we will have jobs in the kingdom of God. We're not just going to enter in the kingdom and, and God go, all right, eat fruit, have fun, run around. I mean, after five minutes in the kingdom, we'd be going, Paul, what do we do? Carrie, what, what now? This is eternity. We're going to have roles and positions and jobs. And like we talked about Sunday, the dominion that mankind was given over earth now is preparation, it's planning. Let's get us ready for the dominion that we'll share with Christ, the ruling and reigning and the positions we'll have and the jobs that we'll have. And by the way, I believe God is preparing all of us for the ultimate job that we will truly love. That we will, I don't, He's not going to make me a gardener. Oh, please, God, don't make me a gardener. <laughs> of course, after all that, I'm going to be like driving the trash truck. Yo, what's up? <laughs> no, I, I believe He's going to give us in the kingdom... That which He's prepared us for, not just by the jobs we've done, but what He's gotten our hearts ready for us, that we enter into the kingdom and we have work to do. But guess what? It's a seventh day work. It is a Shabbat work. It is a rest of accomplishment. And as we accomplish for the Lord in the kingdom, we will be well rested and joyful, as I believe Adam was for a brief time in the garden. So, verse 16. The Lord God commanded man, saying, 
From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. That would include include the tree of life. Man, swallow it whole. Go after that. Eat from it every day if you want to. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And this is part two of that Edenic covenant or the Adamic covenant. Again, part one, back in chapter two, verse 28, God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, every living thing that moves on the earth. So that's all part one. And in in addition to that, he says, I want you to eat the fruit and the vegetables. So part one of this covenant is be fruitful, have dominion, eat your veggies. All right. Part two, eat from every sweet, nourishing, satisfying tree in the entire garden, including the tree of life, and live. And one law, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. Now that knowledge, again, as I said a few moments ago, is experiential, worldly knowledge. It's the knowledge of doing something. And once you've done it, your flesh wants to do it again. And you get lured and drawn to those things, those experiences God would say, I don't want that for you. He has said it throughout the Scriptures. How many sins can we count that we know God said don't do that? And we say, yeah, I know you said don't, but (laughs) I just want to try it. How much harm could just a little taste, a little bit of this experience, how much harm could that really do? Until we find ourselves completely imprisoned by the experience. Eve, by the way, was yet to be created when God gave this covenant, which is why we call it the Adamic covenant. Because it was a covenant He made with Adam, and it was Adam's responsibility to pass on the info to Eve. How did He do? Not too good. Now he told her, don't eat that tree. Why? Don't even touch it. God didn't say don't touch it. God just said don't eat from it. Eve will add don't touch it later because she's fearful of it. So God, so Adam did say something, but it was his responsibility. Boy, that, that weighed heavy on me. Adam's responsibility to Eve was to share this beautiful covenant that God had given him. And I immediately thought of James chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And yet, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to pass on Jesus to one another. How are we doing? How are you doing passing on Jesus? Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll just keep coming back to this. All of you here tonight, guess what? It's your job. It's my job to be those who share Jesus. Now, I want to ask this question. We're almost done, but think this through with me. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how does that work? Is there something in the juice? Something in the juices of the fruit that would open the brain and enlighten the mind? Was there like LSD in there? In the 60s. Many of you know this, that the people, there were those who literally thought LSD would free the mind. And we know a whole lot more about it now than we did then. Even then, there were people going, that's probably not a good idea. Because I've seen you on LSD, and it's not a good place to be. 
Probably shouldn't do that. But, you know, the Beatles were huge into this stuff. John Lennon would spend hours stoned in his back room with the TV on, just wasting his life. He'd write about it, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. That's the deal. Just take a bite. And it will free your mind. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It does not free the mind. It's a jailer. Experience in the sinful nature is a jailer. And if there's any sin that you find yourself tempted toward or you're aware of and think, I wonder what that's... Don't. Just don't. Yeah, but how will I know if I don't experience it? When you experience it, it gets hold of you. And you can't get out of that except except by Jesus. This is a knowledge that comes... Listen, it's not just in the fruit. And we think, was there something magical in the fruit? Something mystical? You bite it and suddenly, bing! Oh no, I'm naked! <laughs> how, how does that work? Listen, this is a knowledge that came with the decision to violate God's law. What was the experience that Adam and Eve had? It was the experience of rebellion. They ate the fruit in direct rebellion to what God had asked them not to do. They experienced defiance. And in the experience of defiance, they realized what they had done. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't something spiritual in the makeup of the two trees. As I said before, the tree of life obviously had something in its makeup that would continue or preserve the human body eternally if you would eat from that tree. So there was something in the fruit of the tree of life. Even healing in the leaves, as we'll find out in New Jerusalem. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was there something in that juice of the fruit? Kidner, in his commentary, calls them not magical, but sacramental. The physical means of a spiritual transaction. And we can't say exactly how that worked, we don't know, but what we can say is this, with absolute certainty, that the prohibition against eating from the tree was as much at issue as the properties of the tree itself. So it's not just what was in the tree, it was the action that they took in eating from the tree. And that is to say that Yahweh Elohim's no is as significant, if not more so, as the nature of the fruit of the tree. The issue is God said, don't do it. And they did it and thus had the experience of sinning against God. Kidner also says, as it stood prohibited, it presented the alternative to discipleship. By the way, by the way, do you know what we're here to do as followers of Jesus? Make disciples. We are here to make disciples. Disciples. That's what we do. The world has different things they do. We make disciples. Do you know what that means? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, going to all the world, making disciples. Listen, get this. Jesus also said, don't call anyone your teacher. Because you have a teacher. Right? You have a rabbi. What's his name? Thank you for not saying Pastor Rick. <laughs> you have one rabbi, one teacher, Jesus, right? You know what a disciple is? A disciple is a follower of a teacher. Our job in making disciples 
is not to make disciples of one another, but to make disciples for Him. This is where we get into trouble in discipleship in the church. When we say, you're over Him, and you're over her, and you answer to her, and you answer to Him, and follow their lead, and we've made little disciples of little rabbis, and that's not the deal. We make disciples of and for Jesus Christ, who is our rabbi. And with that, we are to be all about discipleship. Well, anyway, Kidner said, this tree offered the alternative to discipleship. Which is what? Which is to be self-made, resting one's knowledge, satisfactions, and values from the created world in defiance of the Creator. There was the free blessing of any tree, any sweet fruit, and one tree that invited defiance. Which I believe is at the heart of the issue of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It invited defiance. God, why did you plant it there? Why'd you put it there? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. I would say as common as the dirt. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, that is with that tree, will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Listen, giving in to temptation never produces endurance. Now that's a really stupid, obvious thing to say. But giving in to something that is a lure of sin doesn't make you stronger against sin. That's a lie of the devil. Well, if I do this, then I'll know how to handle it. Dumb! <laughs> Don't eat of the tree. The tree is there. As a, it is a temptation, but God provides better. How about every tree in the garden? How about the tree of life? How about Eve, Adam? I mean, you've got all this good... He provides a way of escape. All temptation is a trap. And sometimes it closes slowly on us. And other times it snaps shut. God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam lived to the ripe old age of 939. Oh, well clearly in the day he ate of it, he did not die. In the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they began dying. The decay started that moment. Bite, and immediately they started to age. And yes, it was 939 years. Why? I would say because God is a God of grace. Gave them 939 years to figure it out. The Bible talks about two deaths. Back in verse 7... We saw how that we were formed and created, that we were made of earth, and then we were given the breath of life, first a physical creation and then a spiritual creation. So in the same way, there's the first death and there's a second death. There's also a first resurrection and there's a second resurrection. The first death is physical and the second death is spiritual. First death is physical death. That's what every human being faces, goes through. Unless we're caught up in the rapture, we're going to have a physical death. The elements of this body are just going to conk out eventually, and that's it. Physical death. That's the first death. The second death is the one that terrifies. The second death is the spiritual death, and it is eternal. First resurrection, following the first death, is a resurrection to life for the born again. 
the second resurrection is a resurrection to judgment. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. Same life, same breath that breathed into Adam. Jesus holds that. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He, that is Jesus, is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth those who did good to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. You know how you do good? You believe in Jesus. You know how you do evil? You reject and defy Jesus. It's that simple. It's life. It's life eternal. Adam and Eve, the day Adam and Eve ate from the fruit... Their intimate garden relationship with the Lord God died immediately. That was over. Their physical bodies began the process of death immediately until ultimately they died the first death. Whether they experienced the second death is between God and Adam and Eve. We have no record. We don't know what happened later. We have the genealogy. We have the told oath from Adam to Noah. But we don't know. Where did Adam end up faith-wise? What did he understand by the time 939 years had passed? We simply don't know. But we know he ate the tree. And we know the day he ate the tree, death entered the world. And life began to die. Why then did God ever plant that tree in the first place. Because love demands choice. Because without that tree, there is no way that... Well, it's not just that God wouldn't know. God knows all things. But I'll tell you what, Adam and Eve would never really know if they had loved God. If they didn't have the choice. You and I could never know that we loved God if we didn't have the choice. Because I have chosen Him, I know I love Him, and I know that He loves me, which is why I chose Him in the first place. But can you imagine the weight on the heart of God as He planted that tree? He knew what it was. He knew what it would do. He knew what the outcome would be. He planted it anyway. Why? That's how much He loves. He is so in love with mankind as He created. And He said, I'm not going to force this. I'm going to let you decide. And it's why His Word still warns, as it has for these thousands of years, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But you all know, in Jesus, the Lord God sent out an eternal invitation, a love invitation, if you will, to paradise. As Jesus said, again, Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the garden paradise of God. That is out before us. What do I do with that? Choose Him. 
love him. Love him more than you love the world. Well, verse 18 of chapter 2, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And we'll talk about her on Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us and thank You for walking us through the garden. We ask, Lord, that for all the nuances, all the information, all the curiosities that are presented in Genesis both 1 and 2, we pray, Lord, that You will establish us in relationship with You. This still remains to me the most important thing that we have seen in our study in Genesis so far. That we have a God who formed us, who created us, and who loves us. A God who wants to be known on a first-name basis with us and by us. That's just, that's just awesome. Praise You, Lord. We bless Your name. We bless Hashem. We bless Adonai. We bless, Lord, if we're pronouncing it correctly, Yahweh Elohim. We bless Your name, Lord Jesus. And we are nearly beside ourselves in wonder and awe that a God of such majesty and glory and honor would name Himself to us and breathe His Spirit into us and then pour out His Spirit as we are born again. I just continue to be amazed. We marvel at You, Lord. Lord, I, I ask tonight You would increase our faith to trust You, believe in You, to follow after You. Not because of what You can give us or do for us. You've already done so much. But not even for all the things that You've done for us in our lives. Lord, would You call us to faith so that we can know You and walk with You and, and, and be personal and intimate and in relationship with You. May we never miss that that's what this is all about. Jesus, it's to be Yours as You are ours. Thank You, Lord, for making this so personal. May we treat You as personally. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you want to come and get personal with Jesus, I invite you to do that. We stand and sing this song. Whatever you need to talk to Him about, whatever you need to do with Him, make it personal. Let's stand and worship Him.